Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. On today's show, we're joined by Desjardins Group President and CEO Guy Cormier. He's going to go into depth about why the GDP is a flawed tool for measuring the economy. A very fascinating conversation we have ahead of us. And a little later on, RetailInsider.com editor-in-chief Greg Patterson, he's going to join us to delve into everything from international villages, very curious state, and whether pressure to donate at the cash register is creating an uncomfortable experience for shoppers. That's going to be a fun conversation ahead. But first, a few events to tell you all about. Do you have questions about selling your business? You can find out more from our expert panel when BIV hosts are Finding the Best Price and Buyer for Your Business event. That's May 8th at the Vancouver Club. Meanwhile, edibles, infused beverages, topicals, and vapes, the second wave of cannabis legalization is coming this October. So many opportunities await the new product market. If you want to find out more, you could go join BIV on May 22nd to explore the road forward at our Cannabis 2.0 event. For more information on all of these events I mentioned here, go to BIV.com slash events. Now let's speak to Desjardins Guy Cormier. Our next guest leads one of North America's largest cooperative financial groups, Desjardins President and CEO Guy Cormier. He is in Vancouver this week to talk all about the way we think about the economy. He'll be speaking at the Vancouver Club April 16th, and later that same day, he'll be appearing at another panel co-hosted by SFU Community Economic Development at SFU's Siegel School of Business here in downtown Vancouver. Guy, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. So the topic that you're going to be really addressing and digging into while you're here in Vancouver is the way that we judge economic performance. And we typically look at GDP growth. But Desjardins, last year, you guys put out a report asking if we should re consider GDP as the be-all, end-all for the way that we measure these things. Tell me a little bit about why you might think that this is a tool that needs some reconsideration right now. Well, when they launched the GDP measure, it was after the Great Depression, 1930, in UK and USA, to have a a better understanding of the uh, GDP performance over the year after the Great Depression. So at this time, it was, uh, and it was really clear at this time that this index, this measurement was only to look at economic performance. But over the year, and uh, more specifically in the last 10, 15 years, uh, you look at the interpretation of the GDP and we feel sometimes that it's the only measure that will that uh, people will analyze about what's the situation of a country or or the uh, an economy, and uh, this index, uh, well, it's really clear that doesn't include all the aspect of a society, the well-being of a society. You have people who work at home. You are people who are volunteering. Uh, you are growth that will be calculated in our GDP after a hurricane, after a disaster, which is not real growth because. It was already there. So there is some concept with the GDP that is too exclusive and doesn't take, in, take into account uh, the real quality of life of a population and the standard of living of a population. And uh, that's why we decided that it was maybe time with our economist to look at uh, some other uh, measure that will give us a better insight 
of uh, the well-being of our society. So one of the things I'm picking up on here is that maybe the human element is yeah. lacking to a certain degree. Yeah, the human element and uh, not only the human element, but other aspects uh, are important in uh, the quality of life environment, sustainable growth, crime rates, uh, health of the health of your population you know uh, you look right now there's a there's a kind of a more obesity uh in north america specifically what's the price what's the cost of this uh, health problem for the uh, public system so you have to look at these uh at these uh, numbers and at these uh, at these results to have a better understanding of your society and the wellness of your society one of the examples that I'm going to point to here that I really was interested in when I was looking through the report is uh, maybe traffic in, say, Quebec. Yeah. Uh, you guys were pointing out that, yeah, maybe there's going to be you know some traffic issues that could hurt productivity, and maybe we'll get some GDP growth from, say, the construction going on. But is this really reflective of how well the economy is doing? That's it. You know, with uh, congestion, traffic, you have people who will spend an hour, an hour and a half, two hours three hours per day to go for work. So it's not productivity, it's unproductivity. Uh, maybe these people should maybe work from, from home. Maybe, maybe we should have some arrangement to have them more productive uh, in a different place than trying to go downtown. Uh, you look at some cities that, you know, we had a, a measure about smug. You know, the smog in our cities in Canada, are, are the number of days in a year are, are increasing compared to uh, last 10 years. So it has an impact also on people who will go to the hospital, people who have some problem with breathing problem. So it, it's it's 20 to 25 new index measure that are, we think, more correlated to the real situation of our society, the real situation of our economy. And one of the other aspects with the GDP is that you look at GDP and most of the time you'll have a short-term view of your economy. You look at the growth in GDP from one quarter to another compared to last year. But GDP will give you results about your economy in the last year, in the last two, three years. Won't necessarily give you advice or won't give it necessarily give you insight about the challenges that you're facing in your country, in your society, in your economy for the next five, 10 years. So you need other measurement tools to give you information to face these challenges. And so, so GDP is, is sometimes too, too, too short term minded. And we need uh, to have a, a longer term perspective when you look at a, a, the evolution of a society. And say one thing that GDP has going for it, though, is it's pretty easy for people to wrap their heads around. They can kind of understand what it yeah. means from the get-go. With these other indicators that you guys are talking about, are there maybe straightforward measurements, straightforward numbers, or would we be looking at things from a different way that we're used to right now? Well, I think it's the, it's a, it's a mag magical mindset to try to find one indicator that will integrate the old aspect of our economy, society, planet, environment. Uh, the world is too complex now. The world is too interdependent now. And the, wor the world is moving too fast right now. So we have to accept that we will look at some indicators that will be key indicators that you can compare from one quarter to another, from one year to another, and you can look at the health situation of your population, at education of your population, uh, at the, the number of students who has a diploma, your workforce, workforce with or without a diploma. And you can have five to 10, the Mercer Index, the, the OECD just launched few, uh, few new index, few measure that 
will be really helpful. So I think it's a, it's a magical mindset to think that one one number, one GDP index will, will integrate the old society. One of the other things that you'll be touching on while you're here in Vancouver is, say, shared prosperity. Yeah. And I want to ask you, are there first steps that we can be taking? Are there measures that us as a society we could be taking right now to move forward in that direction in a better way than we are? Well, at Desjardins, Desjardins is a, is a, is a co-op that has been found for uh, more than a century. And shared prosperity, it, it's, it's in our DNA for so many years. And it's really, really important for us. And I think there's, we, we, we have installed and we have um, developed so many solutions. few examples. We launched uh, a fund, a 100 million fund over the last three years to invest in community projects uh, connected with education, sustainable growth, uh, social issues, entrepreneurship. So it, it's real investment and it's our general managers of our cases, the credit unions or uh, our uh, administrator uh, on the boards who decide where our money should be invested in. We, we also took a decision that instead of concentrating all of our activities in Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, we will deconcentrate some of our activities, call center, recovery center, student loan centers, in some region and small city in Quebec and Ontario where we feel that we have an impact on the economy, on the society. So this is a few examples that Desjardins did. It will be easier for us and more profitable for us to install these activities in India, outsource these activities, offshore these activities. But we said, you know what? It's more important to have a stronger impact in our communities where we do business, but also because it's in our DNA for so many years. So I think more and more leaders should be aware of the impact of their decision, not only on their net profit, but also on their, their, their employees, their citizens, and the community they work, they work with. Do you think I can ask you this question? It might be a little bit out of your purview, but one of the things that's I, I read about a lot of literature is just the way that we've shifted from you know uh, publicly traded companies, that, that there is this beholdenness that they have to the investors. And do you feel that that's something that we need to rethink to a certain degree with regards to the way that we approach shared prosperity? Yeah. Uh, as a co-op, we don't necessarily... I, I like to say that as a co-op, my, my purpose at the end of the day is to serve members and clients. It's not necessarily to uh, give more dividends to shareholders. And uh, for us, it's more than just words. It's, it's the real truth. And it gives us, and I think even if you are a, a public traded company, we must uh, integrate more long-term perspective, long-term view in our decision process, in our strategic orientation for our companies. For us, Desjardins, it's, uh, like I said, it's in our DNA because we're there for more than a century. We will be there for the next century. And because of that, I think people should be more aware because even if you have net profit that are increasing quarter after quarter after quarter, we can see that the last 30 years of growth in our capitalism, uh, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. There's a price for our planet. There's a price with, with populism and people who are like, you know what? I have no more job. Uh, the deal that I thought will be the deal. I'm retiring right now. And the situation is not what I thought of. So there's a price to pay 
for the kind of capitalism that we have built in the last 30, 40 years. And we think at Desjardins as a co-op, but also with, with, with strong values that we have, that all businesses, even public traded businesses, should have um, should have humbly uh, 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 um, a more holistic view of uh, of their performance. Uh, public traded, government, uh, co-ops, everyone should have a more holistic view of their performance. Lastly, I want to ask you about what you think of Vancouver and British Columbia as a place where you guys are operating. Yeah. In. Uh, one of the things you look at the economy, BC has been doing quite well for the last few years, but there are concerns that maybe we are going down into a slow, slower growth mode just because of measures to cool off the housing market, for example. But what do you think about the future of Desjardins here in British Columbia? Well, British Columbia for Desjardins is a really, really important province to continue to grow. We are there with our uh, group pension plan. We are there with our group benefit plan. We are there for our investment in infrastructure, uh, wind farm, uh, highway, uh, central hydroelectrical centrals where we invest millions and millions of dollars. Uh, we, we're sure we have capital mark, market capital in the people who are here to uh, help businesses to continue to grow. So for us, it's, uh, it's a place where also we feel that the values, the way people look at life, the way people look at a company like Desjardins with values that are so strong, solidarity, equity, investment, long-term perspective. For us, there is a connection between the people who lived in BC, in Vancouver, and the kind of values and the kind of the way Desjardins wants to do business. And we look at that with all of our clients that we're dealing with here in, in, in BC. They really appreciate the kind of relation they have with Desjardins because they really feel that it's an authentic human company, uh, not necessarily on the pressure of the quarter quarterly results that we have to, to, to show. Uh, and uh, on the economic base, uh, we are still really positive, even BC, even Canada for 2019, the first semester of 2020, uh, growth should be there. The fundamentals in our economy are good. So this province, uh, BC, is a province that we want to continue to invest, spend more and more time, more and more employees, and continue to grow. Well, excellent. Guy, thank you so much for joining it us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Guy Cormier. He is president and CEO of Desjardins Group. And stay with us. We'll be back right after this with RetailInsider.com's Craig Patterson. Joining us once again for what I guess is our bi-weekly review of the retail sector, it is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you know, in the past week, we're taking a look at what's going on in International Village. It was being marketed as for sale, but the listing was removed soon after all this attention that it garnered. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with International Village, maybe why it's one of those unique places that we always turn our attention to. Um, you know, International Village, the location is quite uh, prominent and quite central. It's got a uh, history and it's uh, in an area that we watched go from basically being nothing. <laughs> Actually, some of it was underwater at one time to be in a neighborhood. So I think that, you know, International Village was part of that initial revival of uh, parts of the downtown east side that, uh, you know, ended up being a bit newer. And uh, I think that, you know, I think there's some interest in the, uh, uh, you know, population, what's going to happen to it, just given the fact that it's such a, uh, you know, recognizable location in the, in the city and it is quite underutilized as well. 
Well, you say underutilized. And look, I got into a little bit of trouble on Twitter. I uh, had tweeted out in this thread that you were part of that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a sad mall at times. And it's one that I go to quite frequently because they do have a movie theater there. And I, I like going to the International Village Theater. But whenever I'm walking around, it just has this kind of weird emptiness to it and just this weird amalgam of, of different kinds of stores. I, I always try to figure out what its identity is, though. What do you make of just kind of the curiosity that is International Village? Um, you know, it never really lived up to its potential. It was, uh, I think, intended to be, well, I know it was intended to be a luxury mall at one time. And uh, that never really worked out because, you know, the center was never designed, I don't think, to be a luxury mall in terms of the finishes and uh, even, you know, the configuration of the center. It, it just looks more like, I guess, you know, a pleasant outlet center, which it probably yeah. could thrive as if, uh, if they were able to make money from it. But, uh, you know, it has a lot of uh, independent uh, retailers and other uh, businesses and not just retailers, of course. But, um, you know, ultimately, whoever's going to buy that is going to look to make money from their purchase. And, you know, whether or not that's increasing rents, uh, renovating the shopping center, demolishing the entire podium. Um, I had some sources uh, ask, you know, I asked a few questions and some people told me that there was one potential buyer who uh, did put in an offer. And the plan was to actually demolish the entire international village. So wow. it's also apparently been on the market for about two years. So <laughs> it's not even, I guess, new. So I don't know the fact that the listing is gone. Perhaps it's sold and uh, they either didn't update that or, uh, or it happened quickly. Uh, or maybe they just didn't want attention to that property. I, I don't quite know. Well, what do you make of the potential for that particular geographic area? It's wedged right between the arena. You have Chinatown on the other side, and then you have Gastown. It has, you know, seen some gentrification around that area. What do you think about the potential for a developer to come in, recognize that, and just put something else in store there? Well, it seems like there's been some successful developments around there, or at least reasonably successful in terms of, you know, TNT, uh, the grocery stores across the street and you've got some successful businesses in the area. Chinatown, I think, has languished a little bit. So I think we're seeing some development in there, but also, you know, there's some issues still. I think the proximity to the downtown east side is still going to be a challenge. The uh, neighborhood is struggling still. And, you know, there's the fentanyl crisis, uh, you know, drugs that are uh, killing people. There are other drugs as well. And, um, I, you know, I think given the proximity and some of the social challenges that are nearby, uh, you know, I, I think that would make it challenging for International Village. I don't think it looks, for example, an actual luxury retail would really w look to move in there, just given that proximity. At the same time, though, Gastown has some fancy stores, and it's uh, uh, equally close, I guess, to the downtown east side, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of some retailer that is looking to expand, though, it's uh, Canada Goose, of course, which is such an iconic brand here in Canada. And they have more plans to widen their footprint, not just here in this country, but across the globe. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with Canada Goose this past week. Interesting brand. They continue to uh, expand. We call them direct-to-consumer stores. And what that means is uh, Canada Goose is you know, building the store, uh, taking care of the real estate uh, Therefore, they, you know, control the design, they control the product that's in the stores, they control the staff, and they, you know, some of the stores have these cold rooms that you can even walk into and test the jacket out. The Vancouver store, uh, the downtown Vancouver store at CF Pacific Center doesn't have that, um, but the West Edmonton Mall store that they just announced will. So, Canada Goose continues to announce more of these stores. It means that they're potentially getting a higher profit margin because they're not having to pay a retailer, you know, to be like a middleman, for example, you've got some, you know, jackets at Harry Rosen. Harry Rosen will get a cut of those sales, whereas in a Pacific Center store, uh, you know, Canada Goose gets 
all the profit, you know, less whatever costs they have. And I'm sure the costs are pretty high with the rent and everything. But some of these Canada Goose stores can do really high numbers. They store There's one store in Toronto at Yorkdale Shopping Centre that does over $60 million a year in sales just in one location. So that's wow. gigantic. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I think Canada Goose will do this more. They have said they're going to open more stores. Uh, however, uh, this is not good news for some wholesalers or, you know, other retailers that carry Canada Goose because there is a threat that Canada Goose could pull those and say, you know, they're going to be doing mostly stores now. So it remains to be seen how that's going to work out. But that could actually literally put some retailers under because some retailers rely on Canada Goose to survive right now in terms of their sales. And uh, I won't say which one, but there's a major uh, retailer in the country that's well, coming to Vancouver, uh, known for its uh, high-end sports retailer. 40, uh, 50, no, sorry, 25% of its sales, I almost said its sales number, are just from Canada Goose alone. And if it was to lose that, I'm not sure if the retailer would be viable. Well, tell me though, do you think that their growth strategy is sustainable? Uh, they're not, you know, expanding to 150 stores in the next year. It's going to be a much smaller, you know, growth margin than that. But tell me about what you think of their overall strategy. Well, there could be room for a lot more. If someone was comparing them to Montclair, that's an Italian uh, brand, also known for its outerwear and fashionwear. And uh, you know, some compare Canada Goose to Montclair. Montclair is maybe a little more refined. In North America, the prices are a little higher, but not so much over in Europe. But uh, Montclair has a 300 stores, roughly. So uh, you know, Canada Goose at uh, you know their plans for I think 20 by next year really is, is a very small number in comparison. But um, you know, one of one of the concerns ultimately is what happens if Canada Goose falls out of fashion. And uh, mm-hmm. for some, you know, already there are protests around her and feathers and you know whatever else. But um, you know, fashion is fickle. So you know, Canada Goose is certainly having a, a very strong moment right now. Um, it may continue to have that strength in brand. I mean, some brands like Louis Vuitton do have uh, longevity in their popularity. So you know, Canada Goose does interesting stuff. It does collaborations. It's coming out with new product lines and. It has, uh, you know, interesting marketing. So we may see it succeed for quite a while, but it's not guaranteed. I mean, if a Canada Goose fell out of fashion, it could stand to, you know, collapse as a retailer because it would have so many expenses because it would have these stores that was off. Well, retailerinsider.com, you guys have a piece up right now that's delving into the pressure that we feel to make a donation at the cash register whenever we're asked. Does this pose a bit of a problem when we're at the register just with regards to our overall experience in retail? I think a little bit. I mean, I would never want to say don't donate to charity. I mean, you know, charities are always a good thing, I think, in terms of, you know, if money is going to good places and, you know, the intention is right. But, uh, you know, people, uh, when they go to a cash register, I think they are expecting just to, you know, basically deal with that one transaction. And I think there can be a little bit of a, an awkwardness at the till. And I found that myself. Sometimes it's not even the money part. It's just sort of the you know, can we have more of your money? And I think that right now is products, uh, you know, as goods get more expensive, I think we're seeing that, especially with vegetables. Uh, uh, you know, we're seeing an increase in grocery prices. So with retailers coming in now and saying, you know, can we have a little bit more of your money? Uh, you know, the optics are challenging. Not to mention if you're, say, at a Loblaw grocery store where, you know, these retailers are run by some of the wealthiest families in the country. And that includes Shoppers Drug Mart and Loblaws, for example. Uh, uh, or, you know, Overweighty is owned by, you know, Jim Patterson, who's, you know, also one of the wealthiest people in the country. Um, you know, some people might stand back and say, you know, well, are these rich people also giving? I, I don't know. But, you know, I think the optics can be there. The retail experience, uh, you know, should be somewhat frictionless. And I think that asking for money creates a bit of a extra added layer to the, tra- to the uh, transaction that I would say would probably not be optimal for a good retail experience. Anyways. 
Well, the Retail Insider piece, it kind of breaks down some of the stuff that I didn't even really think about why it could be awkward, but essentially it is a retailer choosing which charity. So it's not up to the consumer to choose who they're donating to. And it's not up to us to get any sort of tax rebate if we decide to go ahead and uh, you know donate to that charity. And it's also, well, the retailer gets to take all the credit for these donations that the, you know, that their customers are putting forward there. So it just seems like uh, if you kind of break it down and think about it, it's not exactly the most fair situation either for consumers. Well, what I'm wondering, I don't know, you know, when you donate something to charity, like if the money goes in the retailer's name, are they getting a tax deduction themselves? Uh, I, I'm not sure. That is something I thought about at the till is, I think, is it a $10 donation where you would get a, char- a charity receipt or something? I think it's that. that. Like yeah. It's not a, it's not a lot of money. And, you know, typically at the grocery till, you know, you're asked to donate less. I mean, $10 would be quite a bit of money. Often it's 2 or 3 or $5 or something. And so, yeah, you're not getting that uh, donation receipt. And that is a little, that has been a little thought in my head. I mean, and it's not like even $10 is a lot of money in the big scheme of things. But, you know, it's still, you're not getting that charity receipt. It's not a charity that we've chosen. I mean, obviously, like you said, it's uh, whatever uh, the retailer is doing. And then, you know, uh, like I said, I don't know if they're getting a rebate from this, but certainly it looks great when, you know, say a Sobeys can say, you know, our customers donated $46 million for this cause. And, you know, uh, that's nice. But, you know, again, you know, the retailer looks pretty good for having, I guess, yeah. set that up. Well, uh, Craig, as always, thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief at RetailInsider.com. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. But for now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends and leave five stars. It's going to help more people find our show. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.